Our meditation for this fourth Sunday in Lent is on our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Hear the word of our Lord. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There are seven words which no pastor should mutter. If you build it, they will come. To say this, and mean it, is to speak from a place of profound ignorance and arrogance. Many a church has been planted with this attitude, wherein a pastor believes himself to be such a hotshot that he thinks God will just hand him a big congregation solely because he established it. Oh, certainly, he understands that the administration of word and sacrament means studying, going out and evangelizing, offering countless hours of counseling, teaching, preaching, speaking on behalf of our Lord, and applying it to his own life to prevent hypocrisy. But many a church has collapsed because the pastor ignored all of that in favor of, if you build it, they will come. He just showed up on Sunday to preach, then spent weekdays at pastoral meetings and visiting parishioners, guzzling coffee and munching on donuts until suddenly he's out of a job. Pastoral sloth is a sight to behold. It really is. A minister who does not do his job is a minister who is unqualified for it entirely. As, of course, his neglect destroys believers. Our New Testament reading demonstrates a similar dynamic at its beginning. Now, this is a homily more oriented towards my contemporaries in the pastoral office, as well as for all deacons and lay leaders. After all, the cautionary tale we're about to meditate on is important for any official in the church who might consider ordination to the catacomb synod pastorate. With that said... Let us dive right in. When our Lord Christ arose from the dead, he gave specific instructions to the apostles, and by extension the church at large. First, before his ascension, he gave them and us the Great Commission, which says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The message is clear. 
the king of the universe has risen from the dead and accepted total authority over everything from our Heavenly Father. Immediately upon his rising and visitation with the apostles, the command is given, Go and evangelize, with the sacrament of baptism and the word of our Lord. Upon his ascension, he gave them a more concise description of what ought to happen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the apostles and the other disciples had a mission, an imperative, and even a game plan with which they could move forward. Certainly, in Acts 1 verse 8, our Savior speaks of what will happen and what did end up happening. Indeed, they waited until Pentecost. Then they were witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the rest of the world. But my question to my fellow ministers is, did the early church take the right attitude in this regard? Was the fulfillment of Christ's game plan, so to speak, done in a righteous way. We should expect the early church to wait at first, and they do, as they patiently hold on until Pentecost. Then Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon them in a special fashion, and they are empowered to preach with distinct, cut-to-the-heart proclamations. This was so unimaginably powerful of a moment that St. Luke records 3,000 people being converted in the 41st verse. That is fantastic. Our Lord worked a miracle, and I would hope that the apostles saw what happened and immediately were motivated to start planning on missionary trips to other parts of Judea, then Samaria, then the rest of the world. Right? Well, wrong. They decided to stay in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves not to the Great Commission, but to the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In other words, a little bit of a hug box. Not that there is anything wrong with fellowship, teaching, and prayer, but they made these the priority immediately. To keep the good feelings going, they implemented a share-everything system in which people were selling off all their possessions to fund the continuance of the ministry, to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem alone. You might respond that they were just being thorough. Christ says that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, and that takes time. After all, 3,000 souls being brought to our Lord Jesus in a single day is great. But compared to the approximately 100,000 people living there that day, it must have felt small. Don't get me wrong, I'm not accusing them of gross sin here. Perhaps they were simply making sure they did a good job, especially as the command is to make disciples of all nations, not merely converts. It is reasonable that they should have stayed there for a while. But the witness of Scripture paints a different, less charitable picture, leading us to believe they stayed there a bit too long. Our New Testament reading 
showing the early church living communally and sharing everything in common is from Acts 2. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, the church was shown to be doing the same thing. And it is around this time that 2,000 more believers had been added. So it appeared that their decision to linger in Jerusalem was justified, right? Well, not so much. Times became tougher, it seems. So much so that when Ananias and Sapphira lied about their offering, the punishment for them was death. Take note that certainly people have lied about their offerings at times since. Yet here the punishment, God's direct action to kill them, has not been found necessary each time, suggesting that the conditions in Acts 5 were awful. They still did not leave, though. Then in Acts 6, people are fighting over food, such that the office of deacon has to be founded in order to make sure everyone is able to eat. They still did not leave. St. Stephen is stoned to death, and they still do not leave, despite our Lord Christ saying, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. The apostles and disciples and all converts stubbornly stayed in Jerusalem for years, perhaps because they thought they would conquer the entirety of it with conversions. But then there is a persecution. From Acts 8, verses 1 through 3, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Forgive me if it seems a little bit like speculation, but it appears that the early church was so hopeful for the conversion of all of Jerusalem that they forgot the mission our Lord Christ sent them on, at least forgetting a part of it. That is, until this spasmodic persecution arises and they all have to flee. Then Philip starts evangelizing in Samaria. Then the apostles started going through more of Judea. Then, with St. Paul's missionary journeys, the faith began reaching out to the rest of the world. After this persecution, it seems to me that the apostles learned their lesson and began obeying God more fully. So I believe the apostles and the early converts made a bit of a mistake in focusing on Jerusalem as much as they did. They saw the fruits of Pentecost, and it looks almost like they held to, if you build it, they will come. To their credit, they certainly were not slothful. They worked tirelessly in Jerusalem to win new converts from other Jews, even going to the temple every day where they could continue preaching. They were courageously working hard for our Lord to spread the gospel, win souls, and care for the needs of the saints. Their strategic problem, if my speculation is correct, was that they suffered from tunnel vision, focusing only on this one city. Perhaps they had an if-you-build-it-they-will-come attitude. 
Maybe they believed that they completed the mission Christ sent them on if they attracted people from all over the world. Uh, conveniently forgetting the go part of go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Simply put, seeing their continued fruitfulness, they stayed in Jerusalem until they were kicked out. St. Luke is perceptive, though. He notes in our reading that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was not the apostles' efforts which were bringing people in but rather our Lord saving souls. Perhaps St. Peter and his comrades understood this, but until the Jerusalem church is scattered, it appears they had a hard time believing it. There was so much to do, so much responsibility, that there was a great emphasis on activity in maintaining the discipleship of those who had been brought to the faith. They bravely did their best to keep everything together and work for a healthy church. But didn't they know that God would provide the increase? Were they feeling the weight of stress that hits so many ministers today so much that they forgot that God would care for them? After all, as all of us in ministry can attest, congregations have problems. And when one problem arises, the whole church centers on that problem until a new one crops up. But in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7, St. Paul writes, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Out of his kindness to all who will believe, he is the one who enacts conversions, who brings people to the faith and increases all ministry, not pastors. We ministers are called to act, but at the end of our service, we are to take a humble attitude, as Christ tells us, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Don't get me wrong, I'm not bringing this up to say that pastors are worthless. If God sent his only son to die for all, then indeed this includes his servants in the church, who work to bring the gospel to all men. But we are merely witnesses. Our Lord does all the work, the real work, of bringing about the growth we earnestly desire. This is good news, because this means the result of our ministerial efforts are not dependent upon us. This is our Lord taking the burden off of pastors to get results, giving them far more freedom in the process. And if pastors, like myself, are free from the business-oriented, productivity-oriented mindset we see in the 21st century, then so is the average Christian. Now, again, it might sound like I'm accusing the church in the first century of gross sin over their neglect. To the contrary, I think they simply got tunnel vision on account of their feelings of responsibility over new converts and reaching the rest of Jerusalem. This led to the disastrous communal living experiment and other calamities. But if it was sinful for them to stay in Jerusalem, then it was a sin of omission rather than commission. An earnest mistake. They were courageous in their witness to non-believers and tireless in meeting people's needs. But what would have happened if they departed Jerusalem sooner? 
What would have happened if they planted a church in the city right after Pentecost, put St. James over it, and immediately went out to other areas to do the same? Maybe nothing would have changed. God does all things on his time, not ours. So I doubt the number of converts would be any different. But perhaps the apostolic mission would have been markedly less stressful. They could have trusted God with the results, while humbly obeying what Christ had told them to do. Typically, I end sermons with a directive from the scriptures, an explanation of ways our Lord wants us to apply the passage we read. But for today, I believe this passage gives us a moment to pause and think about our motivations. So instead, I leave you with some questions to help us examine ourselves in the faith. If the results of our efforts do not depend on us, insofar as ministry is concerned, shouldn't we feel free? Shouldn't we feel free to do as our Lord has said, obeying his word for its own sake instead of for productivity's sake? And if you knew that God will get the result he desires regardless, it is wise to work harder in obedience. Or is it less so? What does it mean to be at ease while seeking to please our Lord? To put it another way, if God promised you 100,000 devout converts on account of your ministerial efforts, how would you conduct your ministry? Well, here is a hope and a plea that upon this kind of reflection, we come closer to being the men that God wants us to be. Until then, the peace of our Lord, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.